Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. Misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm, I'm very excited. I have an MDS psychiatrist who researches psychedelics. Cole Marta is joining me. Thank you for uh, being on the show. That's my pleasure. And thanks for having me in your lovely home on this exceptionally hot L.A. day. Yes. Uh, you have air conditioning. That's a bonus. Right. Um, how did you get into studying psychedelics? Um, well, it was an interest of mine going back to college. I was uh, involved in uh, the rave scene in the Bay Area. Some friends of mine were uh, promoters and I wrote my first big paper on uh, uh, the um, the subculture and also the the drugs of use and abuse within that subculture. And little did I know, going to UC Santa Cruz, that Maps, one of the uh, organizations that I that I cited in my paper, was like literally right down the street from me. Yeah, that's the. Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, is that right? Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Really good organization. They're they're about the biggest, really. Yeah, the yeah. They're kind of leading the charge on um on all uh all research psychedelic. Uh and so from there, um I, went, I ended up going to medical school. During medical school I came across what MAPS is doing and uh decided that I would do what it took to um, to uh, introduce myself, see if there's anything that I could uh, bring to the table with my, now that I have sort of credentials and um, 
there's anything that I could bring to the table and also if there's any research that I could get involved in because I felt intuitively that this was uh, something worth pursuing. Uh, so in about 2010, I was looking for residencies and uh, went to a MAPS conference and that's where I met uh, Barry Azar and a couple other people from MAPS and in my uh, residency, I actually, one of the main reasons I chose the residency program that I did was because I saw the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD being the most promising uh, of all the research that they were doing. And, and MDMA is often called ecstasy for people. Usually when I say right, MDMA, right. someone asks what, what that is. Sure, sure. Ecstasy and then now Molly uh, are sort of the street names uh, for what was uh, once uh, purported to be MDMA, now it's getting pretty scary out there. Um, a lot of what's sold as Molly or ecstasy is uh, all these adulterants, um, all kinds of uh, derivatives of this, a similar uh, molecule, like uh, something in the amphetamine class, for example, uh, that's made overseas and uh, passed off as um, Molly, and that's really one of the more dangerous things that's uh, going on is uh, people don't know what it is that they're taking. Uh, very rarely is MDMA, and we don't have all the science in uh, necessarily on even the safety of if MDMA, of MDMA is right, safe, right. Safety, like, safe at all. Even if people and you don't have even, it, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. exactly, yeah. So, <clears throat> so that's pretty much how I got involved. Was um, just showing up wherever these kinds of conferences were going on, introducing mm -hmm. myself to anybody that I could find doing the research. And yeah, I, in uh, residency, uh, uh, which is like the, the training where I learned, you know, my specialty, which is psychiatry, uh, I had a great mentor who, um, who encouraged my interests and I was able to uh, write a couple of papers, which is sort of the, the final authority in science is the publications, you know, peer-reviewed scientific journals uh, demonstrating, you know, your ideas, and then the scientific community then is able to, you know, try to attack those ideas or has to accept those ideas. Um, that's sort of the the final word in science. So right. that's kind of where I got, how I got to where I'm at. So I, I'm curious there's all these different drug tests that you can buy online right. that purport that you can put a little bit of like cocaine or LSD or MDMA or whatever it might be. You know, you can get whatever various tests for whatever drug. And um, how how effective are those tests? Um, you know, to my my understanding is that uh, readily available tests, uh, which are available, I think at Dance Safe is one uh, outlet that comes to mind, uh, sells some pretty sophisticated testing kits um, with the sort of, with the ability of any uh, anybody with a, a pretty good understanding of organic chemistry to be able to just sort of draw a new molecule on a piece of paper and have that molecule manufactured in, uh, you know, in bulk in China and sent back to them. I think it's hard to keep up with everything that might be out there, mm. but uh, but these tests are are pretty reliable in at least telling you 
whether it's not what you what you were expecting to to have. Hmm. What's um? Are, are there any that you know of, like that you can get online? I've seen a few different ones online that that you can just order the for yourself. Kits. Yeah, yeah. The the one that comes to mind is the one that's uh, available on uh, on on Dance Safe. I, I forget the exact name of the the testing kit, but it's uh, it's one of the main fundraising tools that they have for their organization. Ah, I see. I, so, I didn't I didn't realize that they also shipped stuff to. I thought they were just like at events. Um, but yeah, so they're they're they have been um, able been able to get to more and more events uh, recently, but they've also had some trouble. Um, being allowed at events, uh, different promoters of, uh, of events have different stances on, on the issue. Um, some people think it's, you know, an admission that, uh, that drugs are being used at their event and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, others think it, see it as more of a inevitability. You know, you have 20,000 people, uh, music all night long. You know, it would be like probably trying to be deny that there's yeah. right, like trying to deny that there's going to be excessive drinking at a Metallica concert or something. Right. It's like an abstinence-only policy is a little. Yeah, yeah. I've never been to a rave. Actually, I have no idea no. what what they're like. It doesn't seem like something that appeals to me. No. But, well, <laughs> the times that I've done, well, I don't like techno. Right. And then, right. I mean, it's fine enough, and I'm not I'm not big into dancing. No, and um, not much of a dancer. No, not much of one. And then I also the times that I have done um, MDMA, it's made me just like so relaxed. I can't imagine sure. like being yeah. like up and about and wanting to run around and right, um, right. It just doesn't have that effect on me. What yeah. does what does MDMA do? Uh, so MDMA. Um, uh, does a number of things. Uh, it, you know, depending on how how scientific you want to go, you know, in with MRI studies, for example, they've demonstrated uh, a decrease activity activity in the in the right amygdala, which is sort of responsible for our fear based responses. Uh, it's it's where um, our memories and our emotions sort of come together and responsible really for particularly harsh negative uh, emotional reactions to things actually decreases the blood flow in that area and increases blood flow in the prefrontal cortex, which is where all our executive functioning or reasoning uh, is sort of taking place in our, in our uh, prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. which uh, for the purposes of, you know, working with PTSD is is an enormous. It's sort of like you couldn't design a better uh, combination of effects. Why? So so it 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 dampens down the the parts. So it dampens some of these negative memories. And then, but but what is the the um, increase in activation of the prefrontal cortex? What what's um, what's the appeal to that with? PTSD specifically. Sure. So uh, the the prefrontal cortex is where we do. It, it's sort of it's it's where the you know reasoning and uh, problem solving uh, is sort of taking place, and uh, you know that's that's sort of the amphetamine part of the MDMA uh, that is what people 
abuse amphetamines for or uh, or correctly use amphetamines for for this uh, improved uh, functioning problem solving rational uh, skills uh, with PTSD the uh, trigger of negative and uh, negative memories can be so intolerable that they actually uh, it, it, it interferes with their ability to think through to to do the necessary therapy. It can it can take a long time to get somebody able to tolerate the emotions evoked by traumatic memories uh, to be able to uh, process and appropriately deal with those emotions and those memories and to put them into context and integrate them into their life story. So. Uh, in fact, that's that's a, a main contributor to the to the progression of PTSD is, you know, the emotions that they do experience are so intensely negative that they isolate their emotions mm. and start to avoid pretty much anything that will remind them of those experiences, which can leave people really impaired, crippled, um, unable to leave the house, unable to tolerate crowds, unable to tolerate uh you know any any sort of just worried about any experience. trigger whatsoever that right. might yeah right. um i remember i think it was in um well i know it was oliver sex i think it was in the mind's eye uh he was talking about ptsd and talking about people that would come back from from war and and two people that were in the exact same situation in the exact same trench like right next to one another and one of them would have PTSD and another one wouldn't. And, um, and he talked about one of the common things, one of the common differences that um, was observed was these, these people that were kind of better adjusted and didn't suffer the PTSD seemed to be a lot more open about their experience and, and were able to like share it and talk about it right. with their families and, or go to therapy or whatever it is. And, and people with, PTSD would often just kind of like it started with just like, well, I'm I'm just going to be tough about this. I'm not going to right, talk right. about what happened, and right. and so his his idea was that if you kind of push these down enough and suppress them enough, they're kind of almost getting stronger to the point where then it just explodes into your right. perception, right. and that's where the actual like hallucinations come from. Right. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, that's sort of a, a great text on uh, PTSD and the way that PTSD, PTSD manifests. Uh, and, and it's well known that, yeah, the people who do, not everyone who goes to war and suffers traumatic experiences or... Uh, not everybody who in civilian life uh, suffer traumatic experiences develops PTSD, but we do know that those who do develop PTSD do have a lot of other you know, comorbid issues. Uh, they're more likely to already be, uh, to also suffer from depression, suffer, have a, a history or background, uh, or, uh, you know, more likely to have insecure attachments, uh, develop, have developed insecure attachments, uh, or, but it's not, um, it's not the whole picture. That's for sure. I mean, there are people who are otherwise entirely healthy who develop uh, PTSD in the face of you know severe traumatic experiences. Uh, it is, uh, it is, uh, you know, a, a fairly unique about uh, PTSD that you know it 
it is something that can be, it's almost like a normal reaction. It isn't a dysfunctional brain. It doesn't require dysfunctional uh, uh, predisposition that uh, someone can develop a, uh, a, a disorder or a, uh, uh, an impairment despite having had no predisposition to it. I mean, Mm. yeah, I, I mean, for, for me and my own psychedelic use, which I don't, I'm, I'm not a big MDMA guy. I don't, I don't like speedy thing. I I don't like the amphetamine part of it, which Uh which, by the way, uh, side note, what, what's the difference between MDMA and MDA? If, If you know what you're getting. Assuming you actually know that you're getting the the difference uh, as far as molecularly or con- like the consequences or the ex- experientially um, both yeah so uh, it's a different molecule um, uh, methylene uh, dioxymethamphetamine versus um, uh, methylene dioxyamphetamine uh, the MDMA is closer to uh, 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 the backbone is more uh, closely related to uh, from, to methamphetamine than amphetamine. Um, both have been used historically. You know, before before the great uh, before everything was banned, MDMA and MDMA were used side by side uh, in a lot of the for the, a lot of the same indications and in a lot of the same instances in. Uh, places like the the Maryland Research Institute, I believe it was, uh, or the Maryland Psychiatric Institute, uh, in the fifties and in the sixties, they were they were used for a lot of the same reasons. I think, um, as far as the subjective effects of them, I haven't heard a lot of differential. I haven't heard a lot of differences in the way people experience it, and. Uh, actually, I think MDA is something that would be considered to be a candidate for something to look at if MDMA ends up being effective for the treatment of PTSD. Uh, I think MDA would be something reasonable to consider looking at afterward. I think right now, though, uh, MDMA has all of the momentum, has mm-hmm. all of the investment already in it to get it to right, where it right. is at this point, and it's important to really uh, see through the MDMA uh, research, but I actually uh, haven't found much evidence that MDA wouldn't be uh, effective also. Yeah, well, my my subjective experience, which sure. is very... It, it, of, of the psychedelics that I've done, I've only done MDA a few times. I've really only done MDMA less than 10 times. And I would... In my experience, it seems like MDMA is much more speedy and like jaw clenching. Like there's like okay. it's still like a feeling of of like love and and um, just a great body buzz and everything. But with like an element of almost like cocaine or something attached to it, which I don't mm. care for. Like the speediness sure. of it, I don't like that. And M- MDA seems to me as way less speedy like not really clenching jaw much or anything and it seems more seems more psychedelic it seems a little more like mushrooms or something where i'll get a little more 
visually like my vision might be a little like choppier or yeah. or clearer in certain ways doing something visually that's just a little bit more yeah i've heard that description that mda might be a little more psychedelic uh because you know as far as psychedelics go mdma and mda are not really as you know they're not they're experientially not very similar to what has been considered the psychedelics, certainly not the classic yeah. psychedelics, LSD like or psilocybin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly, they're more closely related to uh, mescaline. Mescaline is, comes from the same sort of family tree of molecules that MDMA, MDA, and the amphetamines do. Uh, but hmm. yeah, the MDA, I've heard people also describe it being a gentler than MDMA. It sounds like that's what you're describing yeah, too, yeah, yeah. that MDA... Uh, it doesn't come on so abruptly. It's not like uh, one minute it's not there, and then the next minute all oh, it's happening. And then when it's um, exiting the system, it's not as abrupt a come down. Uh, I've heard people describe it as being a gentler experience in that way. Also, haven't heard much about this, you know, well-known phenomenon with MDMA of the. You know the the couple days after effect of Feeling having a, little drained a, like a depressed, depressed day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard that description with MDA, but you know that's the problem with all these being outlawed is we can't even do scientific research, so I, I can't yeah, speak with a, a ton of confidence. One drug, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. like the hoops that you guys have to jump Absolutely. through just to, I mean, just to be able to test it on rats, is, right? Is like right crazy. to have it. Um, like you can just kill rats if you want to as a scientist, right, right, and that's right. fine. Right. But to give them like but a little to hold MDMA. MDMA in your hand requires a lot of right. uh, of uh, red tape. So yeah, that's one of the really, you know, if anything that that has been a I think unforeseen. Hopefully, it wasn't intended consequence of the war on drugs and and the policy of the scheduling is that it really tied the hands of scientists who, you know, it's already hard enough to get grants and to do research. It, it, it was just, it's been such a hurdle in, uh, in being able to, to speak with much confidence on, on any of these questions, unfortunately. You know, we're only now beginning to be able to ask and answer uh, any of these questions about these molecules. And it's a shame because, they really seemed to show a lot of promise before you know, they were ultimately outlawed. Yeah, I, I, I mean, so I, I was going to to finish my thought earlier. I jump around so much on this sure, podcast. Sure, no problem. Sorry, that's annoying. Um, my my listeners are used to me though. Um, but I, so I I don't have any. I really had a fairly, I guess, privileged like middle class or lower middle class upbringing. I don't have any trauma or nothing that the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I broke both of my feet, but I don't even, it was just like a physical thing. Yeah, it didn't really tell me about that. It, it didn't, it Hiking, didn't right? like, yeah, yeah. It didn't, it didn't impair me. It wasn't like, it wasn't like emotional trauma or, sure, or whatever. And, sure. and so, so I, I can in no way speak to what it's like to have PTSD or anything. But I have had depression since I was very young and sure. I tended to ruminate a lot on and I was very insecure and um becoming a stand-up helped a lot because I was able to vocalize and start because I was a very quiet right. kid and I kept a lot of things to myself but um psychedelics in general um and I'm more of like a mushroom guy but um psilocybin but 
I, especially when I do them as I'm older, I, cause, cause to this day, I'll just be out and about or I'll be like in the shower or something and I'll think of some dumb thing I did in high school. I'm like, oh, you idiot. It's just a nothing thing that no one else knows about and wasn't even that big of a deal. And I'll like beat myself up for it just completely unnecessarily. But when I'm on, um, mushrooms or something, I, I just like, I, I see memories like that and then i just kind of laugh at myself for it a little bit and i'm able to like kind of forgive myself for it and process it rather than like pushing it away i'm just like oh you're just a imperfect primate like doing the best right. That, that right right he can and you know that wasn't that big of a deal and i'm able to forgive myself for so many things i mean yeah. it's been and i'm not saying I'm in no way saying that everyone should go out and do psychedelics because I think right. that, especially with, with, like you said, you don't even know what you're getting half the time. And right. I think there can be a lot of danger and there. And we don't know a lot. That's, you know, we're, we're very limited on what we can say regarding safety, efficacy, any of that. Right. But I am saying 100% that they should be descheduled so that you guys can research the damn things right. to Thank figure you. out <laughs> if they are exactly. actually beneficial and and even if even if the research is as promising as it could possibly be, there's still going to be people that it's not going to be effective for. Right. But through researching it, you're going to be able to figure out better when is. this is going to, yeah, who, right. who this isn't going to work for, who it is. Absolutely. And um, it seems, it just seems completely insane to me. How, yeah. how did it... <coughs> You, do you um, do you know anything about the history of of uh, how these laws came into place or anything? Yeah, well, um, the first psychedelic that was discovered uh, in at least sci- scientifically in a lab was <clears throat> LSD was discovered um, uh, by Hoffman mm-hmm. and. Uh, there was an explosion in the, in the 1940s, research. right? Yeah, let's see. Yeah, I'm 1940s, pretty sure it was. yeah. Um, and there was an explosion of research in the scientific community, particularly in psychiatry, uh, that that discovery actually uh, pushed a lot of the theory towards the role of serotonin in, uh, in psychiatry and uh, pushed... A biological model that ultimately, you know, is a big part of why today a lot of our antidepressants we understand that serotonin is a major role uh, in in mood and mood fluctuations, um, and so you know that there was quite a bit of research. I mean, I think this is something that would be a fantastic. Uh, you know, graduate student um, project is to try to go back and get all of that literature so that we're not reinventing the wheel here uh, and doing a bunch of stuff that we already doing a bunch of studies that we've already done uh, just because that literature is published before the internet where you know you really have to dig to find that stuff but um, as far as how it became illegal uh, i believe it was 1970 richard nixon uh for reasons that are debated and some are pretty uh shady yeah. um uh he outlawed uh the drugs mm-hmm. that 
from what I understand, he considered uh, a, a threat to order. And um, unfortunately, what he threw on that list were a lot of psychedelics and, and Schedule 1 being defined as something with nothing but you know, potential for harm and abuse and no potential for medical value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I mean, two there major is a whole, Yeah, there's a whole, uh, you know, field of, of research in psychiatry that uh, would have disagreed with there being no medical potential value. And then as far as you know, abuse, there there's very few cases of, uh, of psychedelic, you know, dependence. There's, there's not... Uh, a great case to be made that people get into trouble with psychedelics in the way they do with cocaine or heroin yeah. or alcohol or anything like that. Yeah. And, uh, and actually that was, uh, something that I had wanted to do during my, my training was to do a survey of, uh, addictionologists, you know, the addiction specialists and just, you know, get a really broad spectrum rundown, you know, questionnaire, what percentage do you suppose of your practice is dealing with, you know, and go and list all the Schedule One drugs and see how many of them have anyone on their roster that's, you know, seeking treatment because of the impairment in their life functioning due to excessive LSD or psilocybin use. Yeah, or, and it, not uh, a single person. <laughs> it's 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 the craziest thing. As, as someone who rare, yeah. spent years as like, I mean, I was definitely very much an alcoholic and um i I still drink some now but much more reasonable i took a few years off and as someone who um has has been addicted to cigarettes and everything like i know what addiction feels like sure whereas something like mushrooms i i try to do mushrooms as often as i possibly can which is like Three times a year, me forcing right. myself to right. nervously, right, like, right, right. Like that's not what an addiction profile yeah. looks like. And this, whereas, like, if I were to try to drink as much as possible or do as yeah. much cocaine as I possibly could, or something like that, it would be, it, it in a month's time, it would be life changing, right? You know, right. in a in a very negative way. Yeah, and um, you know, in fact, you know, psilocybin is coming to the you know among the among the the indications that have been looked at for potential medical benefit with psilocybin some of the more amazing studies have been done looking at psilocybin for its anti-addictive properties it's been shown to be uh, a useful tool in a small study but uh, worth reproducing worth pursuing for alcoholism and one of the most amazing studies one of my favorite studies of all time uh, was the study by Griffiths and Johnson at, um, at, at Johns Hopkins, where they actually showed not only that psilocybin was helpful for smoking cessation, but that, this is beautiful, the title of the paper is Psilocybin, Indu- psilocybin Occasioned Mystical Experience for Smoking Cessation. So, something along those lines. Mm. But the idea there is that they showed that it wasn't just that people took psilocybin and, you know, X amount of psilocybin means X decrease in smoking. It was the, the main indicator for people's success in smoking cessation was the degree of mystical experience that they experienced. So, you know, for the first time to my knowledge showing 
you know, actually using a, a, a psychedelic for an indication and showing the psychedelic experience itself having healing potential. Right. Potentially, that's what it showed. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like something, and in, in, in obviously, you know, this is all stuff that needs to be studied much, much more. Right. And I'm just going to wildly speculate, just from my own experience, which I'm pretty experienced, mm-hmm. I, I would say that unlike something like an antidepressant, which you're taking every day to actually change the chemical um, balance in your brain, something like psilocybin is more about like having this experience where where maybe you have like a vision or or just it's always like it's always stuff that like a therapist could get down to or like a good friend of yours could have probably told you or even you kind of consciously like intellectually knew about yourself or needed to change but it's almost like it kind of opens up a little pathway into the non-conscious and and helps you process it and understand it a little more right and and you just it, it just sticks with you a little longer. Like yeah. I need to, um, like after the last time I did, um, I did, um, some psilocybin and went in a float tank, um, wow. actually. And it was, uh, it was wonderful. Was yeah. Wonderful. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had. And, um, <laughs> again, not saying everyone should have right, the best right. experience ever. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but I, since that time I, and, and there could be a number of other variables too. I don't, I don't mean to credit psychedelics for this, but I've been taking, finally taking like really good care of myself again. Not really good. I still have a long ways to go, Sure, but it's been since my injury, I've just fallen out of like exercising and everything else. And ever since that time, I've been like, it's been clicking for me and I've, I've been kind of more focused and driven and i i felt more creative afterwards and yeah and um it was just i mean and i've done them so many times and it was still it's it was kind of like life-changing in right. a way right and any del- deleterious effects anything that you feel like it caused things to uh, move for the worse in any direction or any part of your life mm, no I've had that with with DMT um, because DMT is so jarring. Um, DMT for the listeners, dimethyltryptamine. It, you, it's. It, do you know anything about DMT? Dimethyltryptamine. Yeah. yeah. So it's a it's part of that other um, molecular family related more to like psilocybin and um, more closely related to the classic hallucinogens, one of the most powerful, potent uh, classic hallucinogens, especially if you're talking about like that, you know, measuring the mystical experience, which there are validated measures to assess somebody's degree of experience. DMT most likely score the highest of anything that I'm aware of. Oh, yeah. On those kinds of measures. Mushrooms are like, maybe you kind of have some old memories come back or some if you do enough of them maybe like a brief little vision or hallucination or something but um dmt is like you go somewhere else entirely into this different space that seems like like a di- different like digital dimension or something like that right. i mean it's 
It's the mm. I think it's what the non-conscious mind, how the non-conscious mind works. It's, a lot of people call it the spirit molecule because they think they're seeing all these beings and stuff like that, which I've seen those same things. I right. just don't think it's like a different dimension. I think it's yeah. just what my non-conscious is doing. But that, even though I've never had like a bad experience on DMT, like I've never had 10 minutes to, it's just a 10 minute trip and I've never, I've never not liked it, Sure, but it's, it has been jarring. so jarring and unsettling <laughs> that right. sometimes like for a week after I'll one, if I have like a lot of writing to do for my act or whatever sure. else, I have a hard time thinking about anything other than DMT because it was just so profound yeah. and not, not in a negative way. Um, but it's, and then I'll be like walking down the street and I'll be like, wait, is this real? Or was that real? Like, how are both of those things real? Right, how did right. I see that? Yeah. And so, so it can be extremely jarring. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. that's I think the thing to keep in mind for people who are real proponents of it. You know, I think some people even get can get carried away about how I think so, you too. know how this is a, a panacea or you know something that it's for everyone and for everything. Like, imagine you know, not just maybe your social group of friends who maybe do those kinds of things regularly and like, okay, they'll survive through it. It'll be jarring to them. But think about like your average classmate in high school, like being exposed to these things, people who have no interest in that kind of an exploration or that kind of an experience, you know, and I think it's easy to see, you know, a lot of this stuff might, you know, wouldn't be appropriate for everybody, at least not with a lot of preparation. And uh, careful observation. I think um, you uh, you touched on a couple of ideas that are important for for PTSD, which is really like definitely my uh, main area of of interest right now. Uh, you were saying you know going up on stage sort of allowed you to get over and get through the uh, the. Um, well, what did it allow you to get over? Basically, if you're a comedian, you're, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of jokes, and then some of them are just silly or puns or wordplay or whatever. But a lot of the best comedy is just making yourself vulnerable and sure. kind of what in a normal conversation would be like an overshare. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you're basically, there's, like, if I'm writing, and I think of something that would be embarrassing or uncomfortable, and I'm like, oh, geez, I, I, I don't think that I could share that on stage. That's a real good indicator that I should be talking about okay. that on yeah, stage, yeah. and it will be successful. And so, yeah, that- so it's about kind of making yourself vulnerable and opening up some, and which, which in turn then forces you to process a lot of these things that were very easy to just push away right right and and explore those things in um you know that's a a key tenant at least so far from a psychotherapeutic standpoint for working with ptsd is this concept of fear extinction uh it's actually with a lot of anxiety disorders as well sort of getting over this um being able to face this fear in a way that's just barely tolerable enough and it starts to get easier and easier and easier to work with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what happens a lot of times with PTSD is that, you know, you have to be able to tolerate those first couple of times. Otherwise you risk re-traumatizing. And that's what 
for example, MDMA allows uh, people to do. It allows them to have to, for the first time, confront that, you know, it's not easy. MDMA doesn't uh, make processing and working with their trauma easy by any means. Yeah, yeah. It just makes it... It can, it can make a lot of people very emotional. I know it can right. make me, like... If, if I'm... I, did, I made the worst mistake recently, and I had MDMA, and I started reading the news, and, like, I saw a couple sad stories, and, like, my heart just started right, breaking right, into pieces, right. like, way more than it would yeah. have normally. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure who it is who gets credit, but whoever it is, credit to you, um, for referring to MDMA as an empathogen more than as a psychedelic, mm-hmm. and I think that that's where it can really be most powerful in a therapeutic sense. Like, as you said, you know, when you, I think you said it's something that occurs to you on psilocybin, but it's something certainly common with MDMA and the therapies that I've been able to, to observe and to view um, is, you know, this uh, being able to turn that empathy towards yourself, having self-empathy, you know, you, talking about sort of letting yourself off the hook as like, you know, I'm just a talking monkey who (laughs) makes mistakes and, you know, it's not uh, that huge of a deal. Uh, Similar kind of thing is, is available and, and, you know, actionable with MDMA in therapy where, you know, it, it really develops more than a psychedelic experience seems to develop a highly empathic, uh, opportunity and highly empathic experience. You can take that opportunity to go through and process those experiences where a lot of times there is guilt and shame and self-blaming associated with traumatic experiences as well. Mm-hmm. And to be able to look at your own experience with a new uh, sense of, of empathy and forgiveness, uh, just really powerful. Yeah. I did. I did just think of like another kind of, negative sort of thing that can happen that's that's um it's more of like a double-edged sword which Mm -hmm. is i i feel like things like mdma and and various psychedelics can often get people like out of a rut like you'll hear a lot of stories of people like you know i was in this dead-end job and and i you know i wanted to start taking night classes or, or something i just yeah, you know, I, I just couldn't do it, and I was in the routine, and and psychedelics kind of snapped me out of that routine because it kind of makes you, it, it it's it's a very like inward kind of journey, and it makes kind of the external a bit more difficult, almost like daydreaming or something. So even like getting up and and it's like, oh wait a second, I gotta learn to walk again quick, and right. so it kind of makes you reassess all of these little habits that you have in your life yeah and in many ways can make you kind of pick out some of the bad ones and be like oh yeah why do i do that but the double-edged sword aspect of it is is that um just it's just a fact of life that we many of us have to go to these jobs that may not be our favorite thing in the world and we have to grind it out and we you know we have people have families to provide for and everything else and and it is a little mundane and yeah. it is a little bit painful to do the nine to five and, and more for a lot of people. Sure. And I have found that seeing kind of those ruts and 
it can amplify them. And if you don't have any or many options outside of that rut, it, I do feel like if I do enough psychedelics, it will, it will get me out of the rhythm of life in sometimes a positive way and sometimes a negative Mm. way where sometimes I, it takes me a week before I'm able to like get back into writing jokes again. I still feel like after that week, once I'm able to get going again, I feel like it's my works better than ever. Right. Um, but But it offers an, it offers a opportunity for a totally unique perspective change and that can go positive or negative. And that's where I think trained, professionals come in you know in you know if you're trained if we have therapists who are trained which we're working on that in you know being aware of that possibility that you know we're offering the potential for a perspective change here and also aware of you know how you know the you know cognitive some cognitive behavioral therapy skills like cognitive restructuring like understanding the way that we think about things affects the way that we feel about things um, you know, having have, having that awareness and having that skill set to bring into it too can help push it towards a perspective change to be looking at it into a less to a more and you know combining that with that empathy you know into uh, looking at your life and your your rut as you know um, potentially also uh, you know having more empathy for yourself looking at it in a different perspective. Uh, and, you know, even ruts, you know, like changing the way that, for example, you know, thinking about, oh, I have to go work this nine to five. That's a way that we can think about this. I have to go work this, you know, I've got a family to feed. Um, and so I have to go to, to work because I care about my family, you know, change, if you can change the language and the perspective in your head, which I think a change in perspective offers the opportunity for this, but also uh, building on these cognitive restructuring skills. You could say, you know, I get to, I get to know, provide for my, I get family. to provide to my for my family. Not yeah. everyone has the opportunity to have a job. I get to have a family that cares that I go out and do this job. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's just you know a fairly simple example of of uh, cognitive restructuring and the power of that, but also the power that a a uh, experiential um, perspective change can have. And I think, you know, there's, there's like endogenous depression and exogenous depression. So there's like, you know, if somebody has a biological predisposition, they have a, you know, a a family history of severe mental illness, schizophrenia, uh, depression with psychosis, depression with catatonia. Um, it could take nothing to drive, uh, to, to spark a depressive episode in that person. Whereas, um, or it could be something from their life. Some, they're feeling like they're in a rut. They go through a, a breakup. They're in an accident. Um, that triggers a depression. Whereas there's a lot of other people who have an experiential or exogenous source of their depression where they probably would not have had a depressive episode with if it weren't for a series of stressors that overwhelm. I think of it analogous to sort of an immune system if you have no immune system mm-hmm. you, know, you can't tolerate the slightest insult to your uh you know to your defenses whereas you know everyone has a sort of spectrum that they're born with and i think it's the same or i conceptualize it uh as similar with depression you're some people will have 
like severely impairing depressive uh, episodes. And those people, by the way, are the ones who typically respond best to the biological, um, you know, the biological tools that we've come up with to, to combat depression. They're more likely to respond to the medications that we have that are out there for, um, for, for depression. Uh, the people who seem to be more resistant and people who have a lot of stuff to be, you know, stressed about, they have, you know, none of the medications make your like crappy marriage, like blossoming, you know, none of them make your job better. Especially especially if they, (laughs) if they make you impotent. (laughs) Right, right, right. So, um, so I mean, none of those, you know, for those kinds of cases where it is sort of an exogenous kind of depression, which, I would argue PTSD is almost entirely an exogenous source of illness. You know, like I was saying before, somebody can be of completely normal, perfect mental health by all measures uh, and still have a normal response to a severe traumatic experience. And that would be the development of PTSD. And so it, 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 to me, it's like this, those that kind of depression is more likely to respond to or PTSD is more likely to respond to, you know, a change in perspective, um, more empathy for yourself, cognitive restructuring, mm. because that's the source of it. Primarily, it's not uh, uh, underlying biological predisposition to PTSD. And so, you know, I've one of the biggest criticisms that I hear about uh, MDMA for PTSD, for example, or something that I hear back even from the scientific community is, you know, how can it continue to be effective uh, if you've just told me that it's only in the body for, you know, a day or two? Yeah. How can it still be working six months later? That's people that have never done psychedelics (laughs) say that. Well, and, and, and and I say, well, you know, like, because it's an experiential Right. It, it, of course. In my opinion, <clears throat> it's a it's a perspective change, and it's, it's it's going from the perspective that the world is a dangerous place where I have to always be on guard because something can kill me at any moment. Mm-hmm. Like our our brains, by a lot, our evolution has designed us to be um, to survive, and when something like that happens, to make the necessary adjustments to prevent that kind of thing from ever happening again to keep us alive, and that includes. Being afraid of everything, yeah. you know, never leaving the house, never going on another airplane or whatever it is, never going into another car, never mm-hmm. going on the freeway again, never going into a war again, you know, right. never uh, allowing someone to sneak up from behind, um, whatever it is. And so to be able to offer an opportunity for a <clears throat> perspective change where you have uh, where you have a hyper empathic experience with people. You know, your therapists in a session or a series of sessions, which is the, the model, is to offer an experience, the opportunity to have, to flip that script back to where the world is ultimately a nurturing place where bad things do happen, mm-hmm. but we don't have to be prepared all the time for terrible things because it, you know, you can process that a terrible thing happened to me, but the world isn't ultimately trying to destroy me at all times, right, right. you know? Yeah. I especially think, that think of something like a car wreck that happens to you. People suffer PTSD from some, you know, exactly. 
horrifying car wreck that they're in. Right. But the chances of that happening again are very low. But your right. brain's kind of now your brain doesn't care. The, alert, right. Yeah. Your brain isn't doing. It's not let that happen again. It's not a rational thing. It's right. a right amygdala thing. Right. It's not right. the prefrontal cortex exactly. Right. Your right amygdala is saying, "Don't get in a car. <laughs> like, mm. don't be on. Don't be sitting on the right hand side ever of the take car a left. again. Like this pattern <laughs> looks. You know, it's recognizing the pattern as. Somewhat like the time where we almost died. Yeah, so yeah, get yeah. the hell out of here, right? Fight or flight response. Right. Um, and so uh, to those people who, who criticize this as like, you know, criticize this idea of, you know, okay, you know, it, it sounds a little uh, foofy, <laughs> for lack of a better word, to think a really profoundly positive experience can have these lasting changes. But I, I would say to those, especially the people who are aware of PTSD and scientists who study PTSD who might disagree, I would say, how can you so readily accept that disease can happen from a single profound experience? You can accept that PTSD can develop from a single profoundly awful right. life-threatening experience, but a, a single or a handful of profoundly nurturing, empathic lovely experiences can't do the opposite can't have uh you know can't dull the amygdala response can't increase the rational thinking again right um of course yeah yeah and and just the reframing in general Uh, you know all of this the, the fear talk has made me think about something i've been thinking quite a bit about lately so i i did a podcast um a month ago or so and we talked a lot about um the big five um, personality uh, indicator uh, mm-hmm. that some psychologists use and has you know varying degrees of legitimacy and is kind of uh, like some broad broad brush kind of stuff but um, you know it, it, it does an okay job with a lot of people which is measuring conscientiousness agreeableness neuroticism extroversion and openness and we talked about how how openness um, and I don't know how well studied this. The, the guy that said this, the professor that said this isn't a psychedelic researcher or anything, but mm-hmm. he said that, and I'm, I'm inclined to believe it just from my own experience and seeing other people around me, that um, taking psychedelics, like even a single psychedelic experience, can make people higher, score higher on openness mm-hmm. from then on out. Now, some of the factors that would affect openness are are things just like um, uh, like you mentioned an immune system. If you have a weak immune system, then your or if you have an overactive immune system like allergies and that sort of right, thing, your right. your your body's already threatened by the amount of parasites or disease or whatever in the pathogens in your immediate environment. Sure. And so it kind of biologically drives you to not travel and things. go out and go to <laughs> sure, new areas sure. because it's no already Indian busy food. enough. We, yeah, we don't want to try any new uh, diseases. We're, we're handling all that we can get. And so if you look at people that are that are very low on this openness scale, these are often people that are, um, you know, they're usually pretty conservative. They've probably kind of been in their same hometown their their whole life. They probably subscribe to whatever church their parents took them to is the right church. And all the other ones kind of seem crazy and weird and scary. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, 
the sports team in the other state is is stupid and they're right, right, right. you know and 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 so it's just like everything's a threat the u.s sure. is is the best and all the other countries are a threat and then my state is the best state in the u.s you know these other right. states are not as good and so it's just this idea that there's just these constant it's a lot of these people kind of seem very tough, you know, and, and yeah, grew yeah. up like macho men kind of types. Sure, but they're it's coming from feeling very vulnerable and right. and being very scared of of their environment, whether they consciously right. they probably don't, which consciously is what the macho notice. thing's all about, right? It's, right, it's, it's a to mask. display, right. you know, that yeah, uh, yeah. they're not to be messed with, etc. Covering the insecurities and right, and right. um, and so so if it's it. If psychedelics is is um, affecting openness, I think that's kind of probably what it's doing is just making you a little less scared, or some of these habits and old fears that you had, kind of making you at peace with them or recognizing them more as like possibly an objective uh-huh. view. Just like if you meditate and you and you observe your thoughts rather than like experiencing sure, sure. and acting on all of them, and you and you just get a bit. A little bit different take on them. It kind of takes the power away from them. Yeah, in a way, I would. And, you know, I would definitely say that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, um, uh, it, it for whatever reason invokes this concept of the multi generational trauma. You know, uh, people how the effects of your father, for example, having PTSD on on the way that you view the world and the dangers of the world and people being predisposed to basically inheriting this worldview and this perspective. You know, in a lot of, um, I could speak from experience where I grew up in the, uh, the Antelope Valley, uh, traditionally very conservative uh, part of, especially for California, very conservative state. Also, very uh, high uh, high proportion of people who have been in the military, uh, and people who have been in the military and seen combat. You know, I think that 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 has a tremendous effect on the overall you know local politics and and the and the openness of the generation coming after. You know, there's a lot of Vietnam veterans in that town in particular, and I think that in in towns where there are going to be a lot of Vietnam veterans or war veterans that are exposed to, uh, you know, basically who, who are living with PTSD are going to cultivate that kind of culture around them too. There is a very, you know, fearing the neighbor, like who are the new people, um, Especially if the one mentality. time that you traveled out of this country in your life, it was to go to war. Right. <laughs> you're really shot be like, don't ever, don't right. ever leave this country. Right, yeah, right, like, right. It's very safe here. It's very scary over right. there. And and you know the, I mean the the term conservatism to like conserve right. what we have here. You know, it's a very strong uh, ethos there, and I think you know um, one could probably you know I haven't seen the the research, so I can't. Um, say with any authority, but I wouldn't be shocked to find more conservative places also having higher incidence of PTSD and the, mm. uh, especially in the population that is sort of governing. Right. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. And, that, and then that makes me think that that's part of what was behind kind of the making it a schedule one in the first place to, uh, because to make like cocaine a schedule two and right. psychedelics a schedule one if it's making people more, these people that are very low on the 
um, openness scale. A lot of times they're like pillars of the community or, you know, whatever sure. served in every, everything else. But they're, they're very much like whatever playbook society handed me, I'm going to follow this to the T. I like having, uh, you know, being able to follow these nice clear directions because everything else seems a little scary and, I don't like new ideas and yeah. and and, the, and 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 sorry to interrupt, but I just got excited about this idea and this fundamental idea that the role of the government is to provide safety and to be yeah, these, like the head of the military, right? And military funding being relatively unlimited, while social programs that's like oh everybody every man for himself and you know right right yeah very much and, and it's like these people are very good like like. They like laws a lot. You know, I maybe wish they were a little stricter or whatever, but, right, but right. really, really enjoy. And if you're a lawmaker, these are like your favorite people. They're very easy to manage and everything. Right. And so if a big culture of people starts becoming more open and starts questioning a bit more, I think that's, sure. that, that, that's getting way toward like the conspiracy end of things, which I, I'm not a big conspiracy guy. I think it's more about just, um, um, just, ignorance and and fear yeah, is I mean, probably what drove a lot of the laws i mean i know there was you know an, an admission by uh, i don't know the name i'm sure a lot of advocates out there are screaming at the radio right now because i can't think of the name but um because and ultimately it's not the most important thing in my life but uh yeah there was the a gentleman that was a part of the the nixon administration that said that uh, uh, the purpose of the the way that they particularly outlined the drug laws was to uh, go after the civil rights leaders who were causing so much mischief and trouble and yeah. who they knew used particular drugs. And those are the ones that became schedule one, like the psychedelics and, you know, marijuana um, being very popular and, you know, alcohol and cigarettes not really seeming to have much right. you know, effect. And also they tried outlawing alcohol before and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, found it to be very difficult. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was, there was a lot of civil disobedience. Women all of a sudden wanted rights and didn't know their place in the kitchen anymore. Right, and, like, right, right. and there was all of the, you know, people with different pigmented skin that are, they want equal rights and they're very scary because right. they're different from us. And to have them all of a sudden wanting all the, you know, that, I, I don't know. I didn't live through that right. period. It's not I don't know. Expertise. I don't know enough about it, but um, I, I'm, I'm just a little suspicious. That's that was kind of what uh, what happened. But um, anyway, let's talk a little sure. more about your work. Um, I uh, well, first off, before we start wrapping up, I have, I have a few more things I want to go through. But yeah, um, I have each one of my guests plug a nonprofit or a, a charity of their choice. Yeah. So uh, um, I'd have to do uh, multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies maps uh, right now. They are um, encouraging people, and I would encourage people to also, if you don't give directly, you know, um, first of all, MAPS is entirely dependent on donations. You know, there's no, for this kind of research, there is no um, pharmaceutical company backing to date. There's no, <clears throat> excuse me, there's no uh, large government grants to date and that is the big big money for this kind of research mm -hmm. so to have those two main revenue streams sort of shut off at this point really slows the progress of this research it's it's entirely being funded by people who donate so first of all thanks to everybody who 
donates. Um, and something you can do is, and uh, MAPS encourages you to do this, is to host a psychedelic dinner, to have over friends and family members and have a sort of coming out of the psychedelic closet uh, experience and having, you know, talking about your uh, individual experiences, encouraging people to talk about their individual experiences, or if you don't have any ideas of how you want it to go, they have some suggestions on MAPS's website, you know, of, you know, conversation appetizers and conversation main courses and things like that. Mm. Um, and, uh, and do uh, encourage people to, uh, to ask for some donations for specifically uh, the psychedelic dinners, they're targeting uh, the project of raising $400,000 for a kilogram of MDMA, which uh, is a lot higher than street prices. But the reason is that uh, in order, one of the requirements for the phase three trials is going to be that the research be done with MDMA that meets all the requirements of the FDA of a drug that we're coming to market. And that requires a lot of very expensive equipment uh, to make the very first batch, it's going to be, you know, $400,000 for a kilogram. And then the price will dramatically drop because a lot of the initial costs will be out of the way. But um, MAPS has been raising the funds based on donor support entirely, um, some family foundations. And that's the, the, the biggest hurdle right now to getting this stuff done. Uh, these studies are very expensive. Uh, the phase three trials, which will be starting next year, hopefully as long as everything goes according to plan, um, the phase three trials are going to be very, very expensive and usually, uh, as far to my knowledge, has always required either drug company or uh, or government funding. So this would be uh, you know a part of history. It's an opportunity to be a part of history. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're we're all going to need to come together and help out a little bit because there's no pharmacology company that's that's going to want to sell a drug that you give to a person three times and and then they're fixed for for life. It's not like a it's not a terribly um, yeah uh, profitable uh, method of of administration. But you know, to their credit, I think the there I don't think that there's a, like an active conspiracy right, right. against. It's just. You know, no CEO will keep his job if he proposes, you know, a, yeah. a, a non-profitable uh, concept. I think privately there are a lot of people who work in the pharmaceutical industry, especially in uh, psychopharmacology, where, you know, these are notoriously tough nuts to crack. Like, um, there's not a lot of, you know especially for PTSD, there is not a lot of extremely effective treatments out there yet. Uh, MDMA is the most uh, promising thing that I have ever seen. Um, you know, to give a, to give a, just an idea, like the two FDA approved medications for PTSD are sertraline Paxil or paroxetine. And, uh, in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD studies that have been done by MAPS so far, the, the groups receiving just therapy and the placebo uh, have responded uh, with greater magnitudes than the, uh, res than the uh, response group, the, the active group in the uh, sertraline and Paxil groups. It's not a fair direct comparison because there's a lot of uh, things that are not equal between the studies, but just to give you 
you know, some idea of what we're talking about here. Uh, 83% of people in the first MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD study, 83% of participants no longer met criteria for even having PTSD. You know, there's nothing nothing out there on the horizon uh, even close right now. And this is a a coming epidemic. You know, the the VAs are already, you know, obviously having difficulty keeping up with demand. And we're still in the middle of the longest, you know, war um, that we've had in possibly our history. I'm not a war historian, but, you know, we're going on 15 years now. Uh, PTSD is going to be it already is an epidemic and because medicine has advanced so drastically in all of the other areas of, um, of medicine, uh, people are surviving things that they would not have survived before. So we're having, you know, people with PTSD surviving things that would have killed them in, in previous conflicts, you know? Mm. Um, so thank goodness for the advancement and that side. And it's time now for us to have a, you know, something to offer those people uh, on the psychiatric side of things too. Yeah. I've had a lot of people on talking about the homeless population and, Mm -hmm. and a lot of those people are veterans that have suffered with PTSD for a very long time and it's destroyed their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is something that affects everybody um, either directly or indirectly. And I mean, I like the idea of the psychedelic dinner, um, too, just because this stuff is so hard to tell. Hey, I I would have no apprehension about having um, a scientist on talking about Paxil. But to have someone on talking about this street drug, it's like, oh, it's very... what what is he a druggie? You know, you get so many labels. I do a show about psychedelics, and it's like... If you're gonna do a show about psychedelics, you're gonna you're gonna worry your mother, for right? Sure. right. <laughs> you're gonna okay. and, and, and like the amount, it, like even to even to book it in a comedy club, even though it's a successful show that lots of people come to, it's very difficult to yeah. get an owner to be like, okay, you can have this wow, psychedelic yeah. themed show and uh, let's do a dinner. It, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we got this new beautiful couch. We could fit at least <laughs> six people here. <laughs> um, perfect. So um, as we wrap up, I, one thing that I've been interested in and um, wanted to ask you about from the start, what does this, what does this, um, therapy session look like that you're doing what like procedurally what's happening yeah so um for for the mdma uh sessions uh first there would be three sort of introductory sessions with uh there's a male female therapist dyad so um each patient or participant in the study will have assigned a a male and female co-therapy team They'll have three sessions where they're uh, preparatory sessions, preparing for the first day, going over any thoughts, questions, concerns, developing some uh, you know trusting relationship. Hopefully, if things are going well, uh, and then on the first uh, medic medicine day, uh, it will be eight hours. Typically, is blocked off. They start around ten a.m. usually, and uh, it will be in a warm, you know, gentle, gentle environment. It's not, 
you know, set and setting is something that is really appreciated by the study designers for these. It's no techno music and laser show. Techno (laughs) music. No, exactly. I mean, that's an, I think I'm really glad you said that because I think that's such a huge, important thing to say, uh, you know, is none of this stuff is saying that, taking ecstasy and going to a rave is a good idea for yeah. anything, especially not for, uh, you know, PTSD. If you're, if your military friend has PTSD, please do not give him Molly and take him to electric, you know, electric Daisy carnival or something. He's going to freak out and yeah, probably yeah. assault a police officer or something. Right. Um, so yeah. Um, uh, so in this session, uh, no, there there is uh, music. There's headphones for times when people are you know, encouraged to sort of go inward, um, uh, or or you know they're they're offered really the opportunity to go inward. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emphasis put on the the patients or the participants, you know, trusting their internal sense of what's important and what's you know what to discuss or uh, or when to go inward and and explore uh, and there there's a, a sort of a balanced reach um, in trying you know in spending time going inward and spending time processing and talking with a therapist uh, it's a very comfortable like I said a really like warm environment typically uh, there's usually electrolytes and water available. Um, one thing that can be somewhat disruptive sometimes and sort of remind you that you're in a study is, uh, they monitor blood pressure and heart rate, uh, about every hour, if I recall. And, uh, yeah, so that will be an eight hour session and, um, um, yeah, people have the opportunity to, to take breaks and, um, use the restroom. There's a restroom right by right next door. And, uh, then the participant will stay overnight and there's a night attendant who stays with them overnight. And then in the morning they do a little check in and, uh, make sure that they, uh, feel like they're ready to go home and, uh, to answer any questions or go over anything else that came up. But there's a lot of opportunity as opposed to some of the other um, psychedelics that are being investigated for various reasons like psilocybin. There's a lot of opportunity for integration while the MDMA is active Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to with like psilocybin studies from my understanding. Um, It's, uh, it's encouraged to kind of stay inward as much as possible during the, um, during the, psilocybin uh session and then a lot of the talking and integration happens afterward separately Mm. so they got to start using float tanks for those studies um uh yeah i that that sounds so much better which uh, the closest thing that i have to that is i just like to curl up under a blanket and watch planet earth or or bbc's life or something like like that. that that's my jam but uh that's because i don't have two therapists andy um, to talk me through things. Right. Um, that, that sounds amazing. I, I hope, uh, I wish you well. Thank and, you very much. Uh, I think, I think you're uh, doing, um, the Lord's work if there's such a thing. And, um, I, I think that's incredible. I think this is, I, I've 
I've, I've thought for a long time that I think psychedelics, the, the future of psychedelic medicine could be one of the m- more important things to come into our culture. Um, sure. This this century, perhaps, and I'm I'm hoping that it that it'll become old news, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, no, that, and, that people won't be like, "Whoa, I'm going to yeah. do some ecstasy," or like people will right. take it as therapy, and then you know, and then right. you move on with your life and and be done with and it. And I think it's totally important to point out, you know, just to not to completely open up and unpack anything new, but you know. One of the effects of this, uh, the drug policy of 1970 up until now is to make it that way, is to make it a big deal and to make it, you know, not something that is just old news. Like, uh, I think it's important for people who are new to this idea to understand that historically, since medicine, since we've had medicines in cultures East and West, uh, this is the outlier, the, the, not considering um, anything that has these powerful psychoactive effects um, as having any potential medical value, this is the outlier in you know all of uh, human, human civilization. Yeah, exactly. there's been shamans in every culture for a long time, and right. having ceremonies, right. um, and there still are in in these indigenous cultures that barely don't really exist anymore, right. but. And, and even Western medicine, right up until the day, you know, ask, you know, Stanislav Grof was had an academic career, you know, doing LSD assisted psychotherapy. I mean, this was not even, uh, not even in the way that the most Western thinking, Western oriented uh, uh, person would view it. Was this, you know, some bizarre concept before? You know, 1970, 1960s, 1970. So, yeah. Hopefully, we can get back on track with the research. Yeah. Especially because everyone's just wrapped up in all the escape drugs. Alcohol's an escape. Yes. Cocaine, heroin, all that stuff, just an escape. Psychedelics right. are an inward journey to understand yourself better. Well, thank you very much, Cole Marta, for coming on the show. I appreciate your work and all of your insights. And thank you, listeners, for being curious. I hope you enjoyed this. I've actually been in talks with um, the MAPS organization recently, and I should have some more um, fantastic guests like Cole coming up soon. So looking forward to that, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. If you want to see my stand-up live, I'll be doing um, a whole bunch of shows coming up. I'll be doing... Shows in San Francisco, um, in Los Angeles. I'm going to um, Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm doing a bunch of shows around Texas, uh, Austin, San Antonio, um, Denton, and Houston. I'm going through Louisiana. I'm doing Lafayette in New Orleans. I'm doing Indianapolis. Did I say Wilmington, North Carolina already? I think I did. Uh, Myrtle Beach, North Carolina. And I'm working toward lining up a real big fall tour uh, that is looking like it's for sure happening. Um, I'm just waiting for some dates to be confirmed. So hopefully coming to a city near you. If you ever see that I'm in a place, um, 
in your town, of course, I want you to come and bring your friends. That's the best way you can support this show. That is my stand-up pays for this show. And if you happen to look at my schedule and have friends in other cities that I'm going through, please spread the word for me, because I'm broke. Um, it's okay. It's not your fault. That's because I'm bad with money. Um, but uh, uh, I, I tend to overshare uh, sometimes. Next week on the program, talking about being more responsible, I'm talking with Hal Hirschfield. He does some really interesting work with um, kind of how we think about the future and priming people to make more responsible decisions in the present and how how the various influences that go into that kind of decision making you know putting money away for 401k and and that sort of thing really really cool interesting stuff we we cover um a, a few um this is a good reminder if, if you're new to the podcast it does help to start from the beginning because there's topics that we cover um, and there's kind of like prerequisite kind of stuff. And so, so next week we actually look at a few, um, a few different topics that we've talked about on the show before, but in a new and interesting way with, uh, some new studies and research. So real cool one. Uh, I'll talk with you guys next week. Also check out the, uh, here we are podcast, Twitter at here we pod and if you have any questions for me, go to herewearepodcast.com, click on Ask a Scientist, and I will uh, try to write you back promptly. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. my... Uh... <laughs> 